at the end of the day, we are created, finite, limited cultural beings located to a particular place where God has called us. And that, and we can't bypass that. We're, we're not acultural beings. We're, we're always embodied in a particular time and place. And even though there is only one gospel and one gospel message, um, this is where the word, I suppose, contextualization comes in. It's watering time, everybody. It's time for Apollos Watered, a podcast to saturate your faith with the things of God so that you might saturate your world with the good news of Jesus Christ. My name is Travis Michael Fleming, and I am your host. And today in our show, we're having another one of our... There is one gospel. One gospel. We all agree with that. I know you believe that. You believe that Jesus is the Christ. And yet you've got a lot of questions. You want to know why a lot of these things aren't taking root in your churches that you see going on right now. And you're seeing everything that we are with people dropping out left and right. And I know that you care about the word of God. You care about the people of God. And you are just trying to keep afloat and trying to keep your own sanity. That's why we're here for you. That's why we are here. We want to be able to help you clear away the fog to be able to see the truth of who God is so that you can minister where you are in a greater, more impactful, faithful, and fruitful way. And that's why today we have as a special guest on our show, Dr. Dan Strange. Now, it is not Dr. Strange from the Marvel Cinematic Universe. You might be familiar with his name because we had Dan on a year ago last May, where we talked about his pretty phenomenal book. It's a short book, easy read, great for people, called Making Faith Magnetic. It's a book that you need to get and have in your library simply because it helps you to see how people are thinking in the world and helps you to also see the bridges that we can build to help connect people to the reality of who Jesus is. Okay, in a pretty cool commonsensical, logical, conversational, organic way. So I, I really like the book. But today we're going to be talking about somebody else entirely. It's a guy by the name of J.H. Bavink. Now, unless you're really into obscure Dutch theologians, you're not really going to know who this guy is. And there are actually two Bavinks you need to learn about. A guy named Hervin Bavink, who is this amazing systematic theologian in the 20th century out of the Netherlands whose works now are just being translated into English. And I'm seeing so many different theological readers go cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs over these guys. And then there's J.H. Bavink, who is his lesser known nephew, but he's a missiologist. And you know, if you listen to our show, that we love missiology. As a matter of fact, I believe that missiology is the future. Because it draws on so many different sciences. It draws on the word of God. It draws on theology. It draws on sociology. It draws, it basically, it's asking the question, how do we accomplish the mission of God where we are? So I love the topic, the subject of missiology. Really, that's what our show is about. We want to be able to help you and your church communicate and fulfill the mission of God faithfully and fruitfully where you are. That's what we want to do. That's what we really get into. We talk about the mission of God all the time. And that's why I wanted to have Dan on the show to talk to you about this book that J.H. Bavink had written a long time ago called The Church Between Temple and Mosque. And here's why. Chances are you have people in your community or your sphere of influence 
that are from a different religion. If we've seen anything over the past few years is that God is moving the nations around and we are now encountering people that look and sound different than us. I'm amazed at how many people that were in my church that never saw the nations. They might have come from one ethnic background. Let's say that they were Caucasian. And they never saw that there were all these Iraqis in the community till we started talking about this stuff in church. And suddenly they're like, oh my gosh, I see them in the grocery store all the time. Well, you just didn't have the eyes to see. And I want you to have the eyes to see and then the lips to talk and share and just the heart to build a relationship because God is doing a work and I want you to be part of it. And we want to equip you in that because we know that you're busy that you can't possibly take in all the information that's out there. That's why we got you. We are here for you to help equip you to do the mission of God where you are. So we're going to be talking about J.H. Bavink, and it's pretty practical for everybody that's out there. So you might not see yourself as a theologian or a missiologist. That is okay. You're going to love this conversation. Uh, Dan has just a heart for Jesus. He wants to see the kingdom of God grow. He wants to see you grow in your relationship with Jesus. He wants to see you have a faithful and fruitful ministry. He wants to see you make an impact, and he wants to use the gifts and talents that God has given him to help you you where you are, fulfill the mission of God. So without further ado, let's get to my fast-paced and fun conversation with Dr. Dan Strange. Happy listening. Dan Strange, welcome back to Apollo's Water. Great to be back. Redux, I'm back. <laughs> you know the drill, and are you ready for the fast five? Uh, yes, yes, I think so. Okay, here we go. Favorite binging TV show? Oh, um, I've I've watched billions, and I, I I feel very I quite this the kind of it's just finished with uh, Paul Paul Giamatti. It's been over seven series, and I've I've followed it all the way through. I don't normally do that, but I ha I have really enjoyed it. Hmm. Okay, number two. How about this one? Christian writer who has influenced you the most, and why? Oh, um, well, that probably will be Jayesh Bavink. I think um, increasingly on mission. I mean, we'll be talking about him today. Yep. But I love his kind of, uh, it, it's not just what he writes, it's the way he writes. And he seemed like an incredibly godly person and just, the, yeah, the whole package. So yeah, J.H. Uh, Bavink, yep. Okay, here we go. Number three then, favorite thing about coming to America? Oh, the food. I mean, by, what, the, the, the hospitality industry in general, I would say. <laughs> your your customer service, I mean, it. I I find it, or or inspiring and i know people are doing it we don't have a tip system here and i know people are doing it for tips but i don't mind i just like people being nice to me <laughs> sometimes you get the impression in in the uk that you know you go into a place and it's almost you know why would you want to be here or what are you doing here whereas <laughs> the warmth of hospitality even though i know it's for money and um yeah, i think I, th I think my last trip i just had a burger every single night so <laughs> <laughs> burgers, burgers and good hospitality. Thank you. <laughs> okay. How about this one then? How about the best British food that you think all Americans should try? Oh, wow. The best Brit. Oh, uh, I, I would say fish and chips and, and proper really? tea. Fish and chips and tea. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. What do you mean a proper tea? How does that, what do you mean proper tea? Well, I think, well, no, as in a, a, a cup of tea, as in, I, yeah. I don't know whether you, re you guys really get tea properly. Um, yeah, fish and a uh, good old traditional fish and chips, and uh, and a, a good good tea. That that that's the best we have to offer, I think. Do, 
Does the fish and chips, is it just standard across the, the board or does everyone do their little their oh, no, twist no, every, on fish everyone, and chips? No, no, no. Everyone has their, uh, we, we've moved to the north of the country now and they do they do that their own way of doing things. So, um, yeah, um, yes, it's very, uh, yeah, fish and chips. Okay. All right, here we go. Number five, what's your favorite thing about being British? Oh. Oh, probably, probably the the sense of humor. This has been over, with American colleagues over the years when I was teaching. It's taken a while for them to get to for, for there to be a kind of a a meeting of minds when it comes to humor. So I think the kind of the ironic, understated, sarcastic <laughs> cynicism. I, I I I quite like that. I know Americans sometimes find that very difficult. Um, but uh, yeah, that that kind of understated humor. Well, I was talking to some Canadian friends, and they said the same thing. They're like, they just don't get the sarcasm, the Canadian sarcasm. I think there's a little bit of that within in British humor too. Oh, definitely, definitely, definitely. Although I, it's interesting, I, I still think there are lots of Americans who like British comedy and vice versa. But I think it takes a bit of getting used to. When I saw the British office, like I'd seen the American office before I saw the British office. And so when I watched the British office, it was so awkward. Like it was painful. I was yeah, like, yeah, oh, yeah. no. Yeah. Well, but, I, it's interesting. I've started watching the new Frasier and it's okay. not as, it's not as good as the old. But I still I still think you you can you can do comedy. Well, you guys, you can. <laughs> okay well on that note let's transition we we have been talking about the last few times we've been we've been together actually the last time we were together we were talking about your book magnetic points yeah yeah and we've been talking about evangelism but i want to talk more generally about mission and we're going to yep. get into jh bavink here in just a moment but we know that Jesus calls us to be on mission with him, John 17. It's not an extra thing. It's actually the essence of who we are. As Jesus said, as the Father sent me, so I send you. So we're sent to fulfill his mission. But I find that most Christians that I interact with are very confused on that mission. What is that mission and why is it so important? Yeah, so, I mean, I, mean, I, I talk about two things. Well, a few things to say. The first would be the the cultural mandate of Genesis 1 and 2 to, to have dominion, to fill and sub subdue the earth to the glory of God. I don't think that has ever been abrogated. I think it's restated in the Great Commission of Matthew 28, go and make disciples of all nations. So it's a kind of the cultural mandate, Mark 2, but recognizing the need for conversion, that, that mm -hmm. people need to turn from idols to the living God, all for the glory of God. So... I think in, in terms of my kind of reformed, I suppose, Baptistic way of understanding it, if if mission has three elements historically, ultimately we do everything for the glory of God. But I suppose you might say the the building up of the church and the conversion of unbelievers, those three elements, um, maybe part of the problem is that we've only concentrated on one of those when actually we need to be doing all three at the same time. I think that's what we'll be coming to when we talk about this later on today. You know, they're, they're not three separate missions. They're that that's one mission to um, do evangelism, to do apologetics, to call people to Christ, to disciple people, um, help them uh, uh, grow up in the Lord to mature um, 
uh, all for the glory of God. I think that's the kind of that's the mission that I want to be involved with, and I think is biblically mandated. So yeah, great mm. commission, cultural mandate, great commission, and that those kinds of three strands of the glorification of God, the conversion of the unbeliever, and the building up of the believer. So wait a minute, you said three, and I I missed. There's like three or four sets of three there. So, oh, so, so there's great, a cultural so, so mandate, great commission, cultural mandate, and and, cultural mandate and great commission, I'd say are two kind of, you know, the Genesis one and two and the Matthew 28. I think that that's a kind of our, our the mission that we've been given. I think, though, that, again, another way of putting it would be everything is to glorify God in terms of Soli Deo Gloria, one of the great, you know, slogans of the Reformation. But I think in terms of what we mean by mission in terms of the, the, um, the building up of the the discipleship and evangelism, I, I suppose. Then, so and then the other thing. I mean, the other the only other thing I'd say is, again, seeing mission as both. Well, I, I mean, this goes back to the discussion of you know what is the gospel, and I think you know the Kevin DeYoung, Greg Gilbert thing is quite helpful here. There's a a zoom focus and a wide angle lens. So the zoom focus being, you know, the importance of people coming to know Jesus as their personal savior. I still think that's absolutely crucial. But the wide angle lens that God is doing something that's cosmic in its scope, creation for redemption, consummation. They're not two gospels. They're one gospel. There's 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 one mission at that point. So there's kind of a narrow focus and there's a wide a narrow focus in terms of individuals, but there's a cosmic focus, the 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 the, the renewal of all creation. And that has all kinds of implications for what we think about work, what we think about, you know, engagement in society. Um, so that bigger theme there of the kingdom of God, I think is crucial. Huge. I, I, I am in complete agreement with you. It is absolutely huge. All right, though, but how does that mission, like we've talked about this generally, but how does that differ place to place? Because sometimes we think, well, there's a there's a one size fits all mission, yeah. but its expression might be different. So how yeah. does that differ in place to place? Yeah, well, I think it's, a, I mean, it's, Travis, it's theological. You know, we, we are, at the end of the day, we are created, finite, limited cultural beings located to a particular place where God has called us. And that, and we can't bypass that. We're, we're not acultural beings. We're, we're always embodied in a particular time and place. And even though there is only one gospel and one gospel message, um, this is where the word, I suppose, contextualization comes in. Um, that we, but we're, we're we're kind of limited by our own locatedness. Um, I mean, I I mean, I, I think I probably said this in the last program, but you know, in in um, in one Corinthians one, we do preach Christ crucified, but that message is not a kind of a generic, platonic thirty thousand feet message because in one Corinthians one. Paul still contextualizes that for two sets of ethnic groups, Jews who look for power and Greeks who look for wisdom. Jews are not Greeks. Greeks are not Jews. And we still preach Christ crucified, which is a stumbling block. But to those who have been saved, Christ is the power, what Jews are looking for. Um, Christ is wisdom, what Greeks are looking for, in precisely the opposite way that those things would be brought about. But Paul still does that work. You know, in Acts 17, he wanders around the objects of worship. So I think it's just a recognition of our createdness 
um, the mission needs to be contextualized in different cultures at different times. Now, you can go as micro and macro as you want to. You know, you could say the gospel needs to be contextualized for American culture. But of course, you know, there's all this, you know, what does it mean for each state? What does it mean for each town? What does it mean for each neighborhood? What does it mean for each? Of course, you can go or you, or you can go more macro. What does it mean for West versus South? Or what does it mean for humanity? So you're always kind of making generalizations or being more specific. But the idea that we need to understand this, and this is this is how we get traction with people, um, is is crucial. So I think that's why mission in that sense is localized. We need to do the hard work, theological truths. But what does that mean? That's why we do the the hard work in understanding it, where we are, where God has put us, um, and that's crucial as well. So it's those two things together, I think. Knowing this, that we have to contextualize the gospel, that means that we also have to be able to be in proximity to people to contextualize with them. I mean, that's yeah. assumed in the middle of all that. And you you and I were chatting before this about what you called pre-pre-evangelism. Yeah. How do we get into proximity to build relationships with these people that are different than us? Simply because oftentimes our nature says we want to be able to congregate with people who look like us, believe like us. There's safety that's there. We're wired to find who we belong to. And to step out of that takes a very, it, it's very difficult to do, number one, because you have to mentally and emotionally do it. And then number two, we're already so busy that the idea of doing one more thing, especially something that's as awkward and difficult, it's not easy to do. How do we go about finding and creating the space to build these relationships yeah. with people? Well, the first thing I think is seeing like, um, I think maybe we we often see evangelism as being part of our lives. And our lives are like a pie chart where we have kind of church work and evangelism is part of that. It's a kind of a sliver of the pie chart. And it's very compartmentalized. Whereas I don't think life's like that. Our, our lives are not like a pie chart. They're more like a flow diagram where everything links into everything else. So I, I think, as I said to you beforehand, what has been a real um, revelation for me, it's a very simple thing, is that this idea that our evangelism flows from our discipleship. That is to say, if I know what it means for me to be a Christian and for what what Christ means for me in any particular area of life and the implications for that, then when I'm in the same culture as someone else who isn't a Christian, there's a starting point because we're in the same culture. We struggle with the same issues. And if I know how this applies to my life, then I'll be able to talk about how it applies to someone else rather than seeing people as a project or just completely different. Now, of course, there's a fundamental difference between a Christian and a non-Christian in terms of one is alive and one is dead. I mean, that, 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 that that's key. One is blind and one he can see. But there's a common humanity that we share. And I think knowing how how we still, at the, you know, at the end of 1 John, we have to keep ourselves from idols, that gives a sense of um, fellow feeling, solidarity with other people, rather than seeing people as just projects or just different. And, you know, if we love them, we'll, we'll, we'll want to be getting to know them. And that means building relationships. That means um, trust, because I think when we're talking about people talking about their deepest, darkest desires, hopes, fears, dreams, you don't do that with a stranger, do you? I mean, you do that with someone who knows you, who you trust. So I think there's a holistic nature to it. Um, and so, yeah, it's all of those things, really. Um, yeah. Mm. 
when we're talking about these 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 ways of connecting with people, this holistic nature of mission and flows from our lives. One of the things you've written about, and we talked about this the last time that you were on the show, is the magnetic points. Yeah. I want to review those just for those who are unfamiliar yeah, sure. and just jumping onto this today. But what are the magnetic points and where yeah. do they originate from? Right. Yeah. So um the magnetic points that originate from this thinker, this this missionary called J.H. Bavink. And he said, look, if you go to Romans 1, all religion is a response to God's revelation. And what we do with God's revelation, because we know God, we're accountable to him, we depend upon him, is that in our sin, we suppress the truth and we substitute it for all kinds of other things, idolatry. So Bavin takes that standard anthropology and he kind of, he says, when you have image bearers who suppress the truth and substitute it for other things. If you kind of mix the, those ingredients together, you what he he calls he says that everyone has what he calls a religious consciousness, which is this kind of the fact that we know God and don't know him at the same time. We're running to him and running away from him at the same time. So it's a very complex, messy mix. And Bavin calls that religious consciousness. Now, what Bavin says is there, if we unpack the religious consciousness, he says in his context, and he's working in kind of, I suppose, more world religion context. He says, look, religious consciousness seems to mean that whether a person's a Hindu or a Buddhist or a Muslim or, as I would say, a secular nun, N-O-N-E, because we're still made in the image of God, because we still suppress the truth and substitute it, there's a common humanity that that, that we all have. He says, look, there seems to be these five questions or five points that people are always answering not consciously but often subconsciously and he calls these the, the magnetic points they're like itches that we have to scratch and mm. they're, they're not um again don't comp compartmentalize them they're all perspectives on the one religious consciousness but he says there's five there's totality our desire for connection is there a way to connect we want to belong to something bigger than ourselves because then we feel significant if we don't connect, we feel insignificant. So we're always striving for connection. Uh, norm, is there a way to live? We all have standards. We all have rules of who's in and who's out, um, what's acceptable and what's not. And all cultures, even countercultural movements, have these norms. Uh, deliverance, is there a way out? We all look for... Um, uh, we all think there's a problem with the world, but we can't agree on what the problem is, let alone whether there's a, there's, there's a solution. And this deliverance is not just looking forward, it's looking back. It's kind of saying, wasn't it great when America was this? And that's where we seek deliverance. And again, it's not. it can be big existential questions like, what happens when I die? How will, is there deliverance from that? But it's also the mundane, everyday deliverance of, how do I get through the day without another drink or another fix or... How do I, you know, I'll only get deliverance today when when the house is tidy because that's what I have to have control of. So there's all kinds of ways in which we seek deliverance. And then fourthly, destiny. Is there a way we control? And Bavink says human beings are funny because he says we both lead our lives and undergo our lives. You know, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, I think I'm the master of my own destiny. I can do what I want. I can create my own future. I have freedom. Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, I'm in someone else's chess game. I'm a puppet on a string. I don't have any freedom. And this is an interesting point, Travis. When I've been doing this 
material in other countries. It's amazing how like there are almost the spirit of a culture answers that question very differently. When I was in Slovakia in Central Europe, with a, teaching this to a group of pastors, I said, are Slovakians generally people who think that they are in control or under control? And 99% of them said, we are a nation whose psyche is, we've always been under control by other powers. It was the Hungarian Empire, it was the Czech Empire, the, 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 the Czechs. So there's a real psyche there of always feeling that we're left out, we're not considered what's the point why bother doing anything because it's just going to happen to us a kind of a fatalism now all, whenever i've done this material in the states americans <laughs> americans, ne- americans are completely the opposite it is, yeah. it is a kind of a like I, I don't mean this technically but it is a kind of a manifest destiny it is a you we're we're it's just get things done we can do whatever we want to there's a real positivity there now you know who's to say which is right and which is wrong because I think in some senses both are true, mm-hmm. but it's amazing how different cultural contexts will answer that question differently, which in turn will end up meaning the way that we talk about the gospel will be shaped, our communication will be shaped by whether I'm talking to an American about destiny or whether I'm talking to a Slovakian about destiny. That's how. That's where the rubber hits the road on culture. And then finally, the fifth point, which is kind of the super magnetic point is is there a way, um, a higher power? Is there a way beyond? I suppose the difference in Bavink's context is that everyone believes in gods when he's ministering in Asia in the in the sixties. Whereas now, I think this is the the magnetic point that has to be excavated. But it's where all the other points converge. Where mm. do we get connection from and significance? Who gives us the norm and tells us what to do? Who is? Where does deliverance come from? Who is in control? Is it someone outside of ourselves? And the more we press onto that, the more we answer that question, is there a reality beyond reality? So they're the kind of the magnetic points. And I think they're a very helpful analytical tool to get traction, even in cultures where people don't call themselves religious. The Bible says we're all religious and the magnetic points are a kind of a a, a morphology or toolbox that can help Mm. us answer those questions of which, you know, giving the game away, the gospel and Jesus Christ is the answer. He, Jesus ultimately is the way we connect. He is the norm. He is our deliverance. He is the one in control, and yet we still have responsibility. And he is the way, the truth, and the life. So um, that's where the magnetic points link to the gospel. So that's a, a long way of explaining that question. I don't think it's a long way at all. I think it's something that helps us to see in detail what God has done across the world. I mean, that's just how we are his imagers. We, we've we got this thing within each one of us that is uh, his way of providing a clue that he's in the world. I, I think yeah. of Bertrand Russell, when he said, you know, when he was asked, why aren't you a Christian? He said, not enough evidence. I don't yeah, understand yeah. how he could ever say that when you exactly. look at yeah. all of these different pieces that are there. Now, you've referenced multiple times Bavink as the yeah. author that's influenced you the most, person who's given you the magnetic points, but let's help our audience. Let's introduce our audience yes. further to him. Who is this man? J.H. Bavink. Yes. If you've heard of the name Bavink, and you may not have done, he's not the Bavink that often people talk about. So mm-hmm. um, Herman Bavink was J.H. Bavink's uncle. I'm talking about a guy called J.H. Bavink, who was the nephew of the more famous Herman Bavink, who wrote these reformed dogmatics. So this is the nephew 
He's um, he was born in 1895. He died in uh, 1964. He was part of the um, the Dutch Reformed Church, and uh, he spent his years overseas. I suppose between about 1919 and 1934 in, in Indonesia, he uh, lectured on in Java. And even then, he was really interested, going back to what we spoke about before, Travis, he was really interested in what it meant for indigenous expressions of the faith. And then in um, around um, the late 30s, he comes back to teach in uh, Kampen in the Netherlands and then finally at the Free University of Amsterdam, where he he did some of his kind of uh, most important theological work. I mean, he was always writing. So yeah, that's who he was. He was a missiologist and a, a missions lecturer. Um, it, what's um, what's interesting about him, and where there's, I suppose, connection with people that we might know, is that his book, J. H. Baving's book, an introduction to the science of missions, which was published in about 1961, that was the standard missiological textbook for seminaries, even in the states, for many years, mm. and. Um, J.H. Baving very heavily influenced Ed Clowney at Westminster and also a guy called Harvey Conn, who was a very famous missiologist. And the link there is that Tim Keller was taught by both Clowney and Conn. So there's a kind of, there is a bit of a direct line from J.H. Baving through Clowney and Conn through to Keller. And I think you see a lot of, um, probably not explicitly, although, you know, Tim Keller before he died and I we we chatted about JH Bavin quite a lot and there's a bit of a Bavin resurgence at the moment whether that's the uncle or the nephew but I think you see those kinds of family characteristics there so yeah that's an that's an introduction to JH Bavin you've mentioned this resurgence of both the Bavings and and yeah. I would agree I was speaking at a conference in Connecticut it was a Baptist conference with these young um Slavic young people and Slavics say young means 12 to 30 is usually what they mean to that. It's a very wide birth. It's there. You can be married with children. <laughs> you could still consider to you. Yeah. Yeah. But while I was there, I, I do a thing every Saturday evening of this weekend where they can ask anything. And one of the questions they asked was on Herman Bavink. And it was, it was basically a 19 year old young man who's reading on Herman Bavink. Not, looking just at JH, but both the Bavings, yeah. why has there been such a resurgence and a desire, especially of these younger people, to learn who these, in some ways, obscure Dutch theologians that most people out there aren't aware of? What 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 is it about them that draws them in? I mean, I think there's a richness. I mean, I mean, part, I suppose both Herman and JH would be considered to be part of, I suppose, what you might call neo-Calvinism. And I mean, been, I mean, there's been a lot written on neo-Calvinism recently. Um, and there's been some key figures. I mean, there's a guy called Grace Atando and Corey Brock who have just done a, hand, a new handbook to um, a new introduction to neo-Calvinism. I've just, I'm just contributing to a bigger handbook on neo-Calvinism. Um, um, and a guy called James Eglinton who wrote a, a big biography of Bavink, Herman Bavink. I think there's a richness to the theology that is just very substantial. I mean, it's a very, it's a rich tradition. And I think when we're talking about issues to do with anthropology and human beings and how we know, these are very learned, biblically well-read people who come from a, a reformed kind of Calvinistic tradition. 
but who are willing to engage that reformed theology with well what was the the modern thinking or modern culture of their day and that needs to be done again for our generation as well so i think that's part of it there's a it, it's really um helping to deal with the thirst that i think people have that we we maybe weren't getting from a kind of a thin a thin evangelicalism that really isn't substantial enough whereas these are deep thinkers but completely rooted in the solas of the Reformation in a way that I think is very attractive. So deep theologically, but deep culturally in understanding the times and knowing what is knowing what we should do in terms of those menavistica in um, Chronicles. So I think that's partly the reason for it. And also, I think in the obviously in the the American context, the Dutch Reformed heritage has been there in certain communities for a long time less so in the uk and that's probably why herman and jh are probably less well known but um i think that's that's partly one of the reasons well let's talk about his book that you have endorsed you wrote the introduction yes for it so and, and you even mentioned how you found this book but the church yeah, yeah. between temple and yes mosque a study of the relationship between christianity and other religions i know some people are saying um, I have no idea why I would want to read this book. This isn't something you're going to get necessarily get it like Barnes and Noble or any of the, oh, no. I mean, it, it's not like that. This is, this is a book that requires some knowledge, some concentration. It's yes. challenging going through it, but it's still important work, especially at this cultural moment, in which we find ourselves. Yeah. Why is this book so important? So important. Matter of fact, that you would write an introduction to a, a book of a man who's been dead since 1964. Sure. I mean, <laughs> well, look, firstly, firstly, and I say this at the beginning, in some ways the book um, preserved my spiritual sanity. So I I was I was just started as an undergraduate theology and religious studies student, at a very mainstream secular university. And I realized very early on that some of the people that had influenced me in my evangelical life no one, none of my lecturers or none of the reading lists had anything to do with what I was, I, I believed in. I mean, I realized that early on that to be a Bible believing Christian in this degree that I'd undertaken was going to be very challenging. And so I staggered into the, the, the main university library and I couldn't on the shelves again, I couldn't find anything that would, I would have anything in common with people, but then I think it was the Scottish bulletin of evangelical theology. They'd reprinted, one of the chapters from this book, which I'll talk about in a minute, Church Between Temple and Mosque. And yeah, it was just a lifeline because it was talking, Bavink was talking about Romans 1, talking about how we know and don't know God, how how um, using Calvin's term that our minds have become a factory of idols. And all of a sudden, I realized, yeah, here is someone who, who actually did engage. Um, so coming across that chapter, and then I realized it was part of a bigger book called The Church Between Temple and Mosque. Now, what's interesting is that this um, these were published only after they're posthumous, so they were only published as lectures after Bavink had died. Um, and what's fascinating is that it looks as if these were lectures that he gave when he came to the states around 1959 and 60 um, in in the Federated Theological Department of Chicago. So these are lectures that he gave in English or they were translated, um, he gave them in English, or they were translated in, into English to a group of American students. And um, 
what's fascinating is at that time in the 1960s, the the one of the most famous scholars of religion in the world was a Romanian scholar called Monsieur Iliada, and he's been he's very very famous. If, if you're in the world of religious studies, you'll have heard of him. He's one of the godfathers of religious studies. But apparently, Bav, um, Iliada had read an earlier book by Bavinck, um, mm. one of his other great books called Religious Consciousness and the Christian Faith. And on the basis of that, he'd invited Bavinck to come over to teach in Chicago. So these were these were for these were lectures given to seminary students. And um, I think it's yes, yeah, some of his best writing. And so that's how I got I got into it. And then um, the book had been out of print for many, many years. So Westminster Seminary Press said, look, we're interested in republishing it, doing a new edition. I think the rights were Erdman's and they got the rights from Erdman's publishing. So um, they asked me, would I write a new forward, which tries to, and I think this answers your final point, Travis, that even though this book is in the context of Bavinck's, his context is more kind of what you might call, yeah, world religion. So he talks about, you know, animism and Buddhism and Hinduism, but the the theological structure is as as relevant for your average secular American and Brit as it is these other religions. It, it's the it's the the theological structure which is so beautiful, and this is one of the first. This is one of two areas of his writing where he starts to talk about these magnetic points. So the magnetic points bit I was talking about earlier, they kind of come from this book, The Church Between Temple and Mosque. So that that that's why everyone should read this book because it's as relevant for, as I say at the end, something like, you know, the church between temple and mosque or between the Amazon warehouse and the internet provider. You know, it it it's as relevant because the the anthropology, the theological anthropology, what the Bible says about human beings is exactly the same, even though Bavinck was writing this and lecturing this in the in the late 1950s. Taking that into consideration, knowing that this book is so relevant to today, let's break it down even further on how people can utilize the truths that are in this book. Yeah. Like, get really practical. I'm in a community where there's a, a large Indian population, let's say, and there's also a lot of people that have, are, they're highly aspirational they live in the suburbs, their their children are involved in all these different kinds of activities. Help us to see how I can bridge those two gaps with this book and sitting down with this family that values education. They're from India. They are highly aspirational. They make a lot of money. I don't, I mean, they go to temple. I don't ever see them there. I don't, I don't go there myself, obviously. And then my 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 daughter is involved in 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 a high school band, and yet these families are sitting side by side with us in the stadium seats, helping us to see how we can actually practically build a relationship here. I'm probably asking yeah. a little bit too much, but yeah, and how these then would apply to that kind of relationship. Yeah. So I think I talk about two things. I talk about I suppose the method, a method and the manner. So the method would be. Again, using these uh, um, magnetic points to try and work out how these people in both of those different contexts are answering those different um, magnetic points in in their lives. Where are they looking for um, belonging and significance? Now, you've mentioned, yeah, it could be family. It could be education. I mean, that could answer the deliverance question as well. What what are their norms? And then what we have to do, and this is what I've, I've written about, 
Irving writes about this here a little bit, but in some of my other work in the book called Plugged In, where I try to give a kind of a method that we're to enter someone's world and then explore their worldview. And then what we have to do very gently and lovingly is try and expose that these the, the way that we're trying to answer the magnetic points without Christ will will lead to disappointment and disillusionment because they're fundamentally looking for they're looking for kind of the right things in all the wrong places and we need to show that gently um in the way that we ask questions in the way that we're there when these things ultimately do fall down um and that means personal relationship if people can see that they are looking for connection they are looking for norm they might not call themselves religious at all or that all or them or they might but what we're doing then is in everything in, in our interactions with people we're trying to do a compare and contrast and then we can say how we find ultimate connection how we work out our norms what we think about deliverance so it's always it's just a framework for our conversations to be more and our relationships to be more intentional so there's there is definitely a kind of a i'm not going to call it a strategy but there's a kind of a framework that helps gives us the eyes to see people who sometimes might not be interested in anything we have to say because they think, well, I'm not a Christian, I'm not religious, but we know that they are. And that's an encouragement. There's always a point of contact or what Bavink says, I suppose, a point of attack, I suppose. Um, but then the manner, this is where I think church between temple and mosque and Bavink, this is why I'm so influenced by him. You know, you know, he was a sinner saved by grace, but the way that he writes, there's such a love he, even though he's very hard on idolaters need to turn from idols to the living God. It could be education. It could be the Hindu God in the temple. But he recognizes that there's a real love for the other. And his writing is is so, um, it's, it's out of a sense of love. And he has this great line where he he says, look, we need to unmask sin in other people's lives. We need to convict people of sin. But we'll only do that when we realize that the weapons we use on other people have been used on us first. So mm. I I need to have a grace-filled life. And there's in my evangelism and my apologetics and witness, there's no sense of superiority. I'm another sinner saved by grace, talking to someone who needs God's grace. I'm one mm. beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. And I think that that manner is very attractive because it Bavink's all about relationship. I mean, I would say about J.H. Bavink's writing, as, as one of his, his, as his biographer, a guy called Paul Visser says, if you're looking for kind of like Protestant scholasticism, you won't find it with Bavink. He's a very almost romantic, mystical writer. He beautiful mm. turns of phrase. He writes really well. But there's this idea that, um, yeah, he just seemed to love other people. And I think that, goes a long way in our witness. So in answer to your question, I'd want to say two things. It's, yeah, there's certainly an intentionality in a way that we need to help people see that they're drinking from crack cisterns that cannot hold water, to quote Jeremiah 2, and we have a fountain of living water that has impacted our life. But also that fellow feeling of, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. I'm not superior morally, intellectually, but I have met the Lord Jesus Christ and I want you to meet him as well. And to be mm. able to say what Christ has done in my life and what he could do in your life. I think there's a very personal relational nature to our witness. 
And again, that moves away from people being seen as aliens or projects or things. These are fellow human beings. And yes, they they need Christ just as I needed Christ. That is excellent. That is excellent. And it almost steals the thunder of my last question here. <laughs> you know, we're, we're coming to the end of our time. We have a short time today. But I mean, what we have done at the end of the show traditionally is tell people, this is your water bottle for the week, something for them to sip on, a spiritual truth that'll carry them and nourish them and keep them keep them nourished through the week. Yeah, yeah. What is a water bottle that we can give our audience before we conclude our time together today? Yeah, I think, we're, look, we live by faith, not by sight. Sometimes we're trying to witness to people in our context who we think we're banging our head against a brick wall. They don't seem interested. They're even hostile. We want to talk about Jesus and we never be we can never get the conversation in. It seems so difficult. And I think we can feel demoralized. And actually, we're tempted then to kind of move from a, what might be called an orthodox gospel to try and accommodate Jesus or to kind of, you know, syncretize. Look, what we have to do is trust what the Bible says about human beings. And if Bavink is right, if what I'm saying is right, as I write this introduction to the temple and mosque and you know, that we need to trust our theology that says that all human beings, that however much they suppress the truth, it's never totally suppressed. We can never completely deface our image of godness. Mm. There's always a way in. There's always a point of contact. Yes, we may have to dig really hard, and it may take a lifetime of relationship, but God hasn't left himself without a witness. And people, in some ways, are all... However much we suppress the truth, suppress the magnetic points, we have to answer them somehow. You know, people of Athens, I see that you're very religious. That religiosity has to come out somewhere. And so mm. there'll always be a way in. Yes, we need to be creative. We need to be, we need to take risks. But the water bottle moment would be, don't give up. If the Bible is right about what it says about human beings, there will always be a way in and we're speaking to that image of god in people there's this kind of hardware software compatibility problem that all unbelievers have because they are made in the image of god they're made for him and yet we do try and deface the truth we write all over it but we can never totally do that and that would be the encouragement uh to to everyone who sometimes we feel so kind of um it seems like such hard soil and it is hard soil in the west especially as the gospel tide goes out. And yet there's always a way in and we mm. need to be creative. We need to be uh, innovative, but there's always hope and just keep on, keep on trying to find out how are they on, how are they, how are other people answering these magnetic points and what can we say about how Jesus both confronts and connects. And we see that in our life, first of all, as well. That is a tremendous encouragement. Dan, as we finish our time together today, what is a way or how can people follow you and keep up with what you're, what yeah, your so, ministry Yeah, um, so uh, Dr. Dan Strange's Twitter, uh, Facebook. I'm, I'm the director of something called Crosslands Forum. We're providing resources for the church from first steps in discipleship. We have these great foundation courses on all kinds of topics that small groups in churches, lay people could, can use as individuals or as groups through to a seminary that we are, uh, that we uh, have a, an in-context seminary where we have about 150 students all over the place um, doing a kind of a, a in-context training in churches through to PhD as well. So we we offer we're just trying to offer theological resources that will help 
do exactly what I've been talking about today. How do we e- equip the church? How do we train trainers? How do we have um, tr- theological, educational cultures in our churches, wherever God has gifted people at whatever level that might be? We always need to be thinking. We always need to be saying we always need to be working on formation. And that's the true of pastors as well. Pastors need to be continually being formed as well as people mm-hmm. that they're looking after. So check out, go to go to Google, just type in Crosslands training and we'll come up. And um, yeah, we'd love to talk to you if you're interested in any theological training resources. Um, and it's just great. I mean, it's great to know, Travis, that, you know, what we're doing, what you're doing at Apollos Watered, mm-hmm what places like, you know, the Keller Center for Cultural Apologetics. I think a number of groups are realizing that this is a really important time, especially I think in, a, in American life and culture where mm. you're questioning your own identity and that could, that can come out in all kinds of ugly ways. But I think grasping the idea that you, your average American Christian is in a cross-cultural mission situation. Mm-hmm. I think that's one of the key things that we need to do. And that will need, a mindset, a culture change, a paradigm shift. And I know that you're committed to that and um, God be with you in trying to communicate that to um, to your audience. Thank you, Dan. I really appreciate that and, and encouragement for both of us as we're both trying to do this. And as I was talking to Malcolm Geit and he said, you know, no matter how bad it gets, Jesus got down to 11 and he was fine. So if we get down, we get down to God is going to be faithful. But brother, thank you so much for your ministry. And it was such a joy to have you on the show today. Thanks, Travis. Thanks, everyone. You know, we recommend a ton of books around here. I mean, that's what we're doing. We're sifting through all this stuff for you. That's why I said earlier, we have you. Because we know you can't possibly sift through it all. You don't have the money to buy all the books. And you don't have the time to sift through that. You are busy. You are trying to just keep your head above water. We understand that. you got to get pick the kids up. you got to be able to run errands. You're trying to get maybe a workout in, if that's even possible. I mean, you are trying to get that bill paid, shepherd that person, talk to this person, have that meeting, have coffee. Uh, oh, it's just exhausting. That's why we are here for you. And we do read and recommend a lot of books around here. It's not every day, though, that we recommend a book because of the guy who wrote the introduction introduced us to that author. And see, Strange actually wrote the introduction to this new book on J.H. Bavink. And that's the case today. I I was not really aware of J.H. Bavink before reading and interviewing Dan Strange last spring when we uh, first met. But since then, I've gotten to know how his work, uh, I understand it a bit better. And I have actually found him to be one of those rare thinkers who is at once insightful and practical. Like, you know, he's not just a pie in the sky academic, man. He's always like, how do we apply this? How do we take this? How do we run with this? And he thinks deeply and gives a very good grounding for how we should view ourselves as human beings created in the Imago Dei, the image of God on the one hand, and how that thinking should work its way out in the real world. I mean, when you're going into the grocery store just to pick up some tomatoes or, you know, some pasta, whatever it is, he understands that. Because that is something we all need. We can't just have this pie-in-the-sky academic theoreticians that are out there. I mean, we do have some of those on here, but we want to get down into the nitty-gritty of everyday life. We do need to think well, and then we need to do something with that thinking. In, in some ways, what we do here is a practical missiology. Now, people matter because God created us in his image. All of us, no matter where we are from, 
what our status is, no matter what our education is, no matter how messed up we are or what, how messed up our background is, no matter how Christian or pagan we are, God cares for us. He does. While we were still yet sinners, Christ died for us. Or just the, the verse that we all know, for God so loved the world, right? At the end of the day, we are both who God made us to be and broken by the fall. As Dan put it, if Romans 1 is true, and it is, then we both know God, and we also try to suppress him. We do. We have to break through that. And our mission is to help others break through. To give God glory in and through the cultural mandate, as we read in Genesis 1, through evangelism, and through the building up of the church. We do that in large part by recognizing how God has made us as humans and how we all have been broken by the fall and how those magnetic points all converge in Jesus. And if we try to answer without him, we are doomed to fail. We don't even have to be evil. We can be sincere and moral and still fail. Simply because without Christ, we can't answer the questions. I love Dan's water bottle. Don't give up. Don't, don't give up. No matter how much garbage you see in X or on Facebook or what, whatever people are posting, don't give up. Don't give in. Keep your eyes on Jesus. We may feel like we are hitting our heads against the proverbial brick wall and we may, and this is the hard part, never see the fruit. We may never see the fruit, but I, I, I guarantee that God is going to make your ministry fruitful. That may be someone else's job to come along. You know, I planted, Apollos watered, God made it grow. It might be someone else's job. You might just be the waterer, and you might not see that growth in your lifetime. But know that it is a privilege, and God is going to work it out. So don't grow weary in doing good, as Paul said. But we live by, remember this, faith. That's right, faith. I know, I know. Like, I'm doing that, Travis. I'm trying. Keep on. Keep on. We're, we're right there with you. It's not by sight. God calls us to himself and to let others know who he is. Because this is far more than simply cosmic fire insurance. No, it's so much more. This is who we are meant to be as Christ followers. If you are interested, you can find The Church Between Temple and Mosque at, at Amazon or Christian Book Distributors or the Westminster Bookstore. And I'm going to say this up front. I know this doesn't do well with a lot of people. It's not an easy read. It's not. I mean, Dan's book is much easier to read, much more contemporary. For one, he's writing in English, not Dutch, as Bavink was, and he's been translated. However, I do think that if you are a person who's really serious and you want to explore this further, then it's, it's very worthwhile, especially if you are interested in going deeper and helping your church to better engage the culture where you live. I want to thank our Apollos Watered team for helping us to water the world. And I want to thank you for listening with us. I want you to continue on. Don't give up. Keep going. Don't grow weary in doing good. This is Travis Michael Fleming signing off from Apollos Watered. Stay watered, everybody. And I'm on a roll.